What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain What's up, my friends and family? Welcome to another episode of the Warrior Poet Project podcast with my brother, Dr. Dan Engel. Dan, what is happening, man? Always, always good to be here with you, brother. It is, isn't it? Lots we've been, happening. We've been on, uh, we've been in on a bit of a run together. Yeah, gone down to Peru a couple times. Been hanging out, and and there's been a couple consistent themes. Uh, obviously, we've been doing a lot of psychedelic medicine work, and focusing not only on the journeys that we've been doing, uh, the filming, the documentaries, but also on the scientific application and the clinical trials that are in the field. Um, working on supporting those. And the other theme that has been going around is creating tribe, conscious community, mm -hmm. and how that would apply to a larger scale uh, on a societal level. So, you know. All not, topics near and yeah, dear to my uh, too, man. Why not, why not go for the whole <laughs> thing here on this podcast? It's too short to not go for it all. And, and dig dig right in. Um so you've been, you know, you've been really transitioning your focus a lot into um, using psychedelic medicine as mm -hmm. a tool. Uh, you're a clinically trained psychiatrist, MD, um, but working with those medicines to be able to create positive effect greater than would be possible from other methodologies and modalities. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about how, you know, that journey is evolving for you. Yeah, the... <clears throat> The journey that we started taking this past year in April ended up in the Wachuma documentary, and then we went down in July, and we're going to be releasing the ayahuasca documentary. And and um, Don Howard was such a great facilitator of the the shared work that that we had a chance to experience. And in the midst of all of that, um, there's been this growing awareness for me, and and, and shifting passion in working with clients more on a one-on-one -on -one and clinical base to a one-to-many effect and the opportunity to use the most powerful uh, accelerators of consciousness possible. So the topic of consciousness technologies has come up quite a bit mm -hmm. in discussion, particularly between you and I, and what are all the different consciousness technologies that help, to help us essentially awake individually and collectively. And the antheogens are, are just one part of that whole tapestry. So a lot of times people ask me, like, you know, why am I so into antheogens when there are other things around and, and what else am I dipping my feet into? Um, it's a recognition that, that the antheogens as allies are traditional medicines um, offered to us straight from Mother Nature for a particular reason. And, there's, and it's not coincident that they're becoming more and more widely utilized, available, and appreciated. Um, specifically in the clinical realms, um, there was this big lull in the 80s and the 90s mm -hmm. um, because everybody got a little bit freaked out by the, the potency of the antheogens that were coming online in the 60s and the 70s. There were thousands of trials, case, clinical case reports, 
just by actually just one person. I mean, thousands and thousands, but Stanislav Grof did a lot of work with LSD psychotherapy, mm-hmm. like some like 4,000 cases. And and in the, we can make the correlative comparison too of like um, ayahuasca being done at the Temple of the Way of Light, a, a place that we both know the, the founders and and um, appreciate the depth and, and goodness of the medicine used there. Again, 4,000 clinical cases of people going through the medicine work there and two negative results. Two out of 4,000 is a pretty darn good batting average. And those two not so great outcomes were when people got either mood dysregulated into mania or into psychosis because they didn't uh, let the team know that they had a predisposition because Mm -hmm. they had experienced those before. So there's the set and setting for everything. As as a tool, the antheogens, in my experience, are really unparalleled as far as an accelerator to doing the deep work. Outside of that, float tanks, another thing that you and I share a lot sure. of passion about, um, meditation, vision quests, fasting, um, a lot of lot of different. Like like many of my teachers have said, there's many roads back to oneness. There's many different paths back to healing, and so there's many different paths to awaken our consciousness. Um, I have a I have a, an affinity for the psychedelic experience and the the soul level work that's happened for me, and witnessing that with friends, family, and clients, um, it's uh, an in an in done in the right way in the right setting at the right pacing, um, it's unparalleled in its efficiency and efficacy to help people reboot and wake up. Yeah, I mean that's you know one of the reasons that I've been a champion of the of the path as well and I think people are starting to catch wind of that and you know as you know I've had to put out um, you know I'd recently put out a, a major piece an article about um, safety in in the use of psychedelics basic guidelines you know three pillars of a successful psychedelic experience because in a lot of these settings and we talk a lot about going to the right place and doing it but with the excitement about psychedelics as they're coming online and people are becoming aware, um, the opportunity to take them in not ideal conditions with not ideal caretakers are, are coming aboard. Mm-hmm. I mean, so as demand increases and there's no standardization of care because it's still illegal, you're going to get practitioners who are like bad doctors, you know, and mm-hmm. just performing psychic surgeries when they shouldn't, they've never been to med school and they have really no fucking idea what they've done. It's just some, it's been done to them. It's like, oh yeah, I had heart, someone gave me heart surgery. I could, I could do that to you. Uh-huh. I remember I was awake when it happened. I saw they were in there and they, they messed with some tubes and they used this scalpel and I got you, I got you, bro. You know, and that's kind of what's, uh-huh. what we've seen happen in a, in a few cases. Um, so I think that's something that, you know, really we need to pay a lot of attention to mm-hmm. because all it really needs is for the, you know, draconian forces that want to keep these psychedelic medicines illegal and away from the opportunity to heal, which it, there does seem to be some external pressure, some unwillingness to look at the positive benefit. I mean, if you look purely at the scheduling of the drugs, all of them say no medicinal benefit, you know, well, we know that's bullshit high propensity for addiction, uh, I would be hard-pressed to see anybody addicted to a boga. I mean, you'd have to be a real masochistic <laughs> son of a bitch to be That's addi- going to be one be unique addicted. character. <laughs> yeah, you know, so Whoa. all of these things, they just don't make sense. They yeah. fall and they and they falter. So the only assumption that makes sense is there's external pressures, but maybe it's just fear or maybe it's more conspiratorial. Um, but anyways, whatever these forces are, that are at play that are keeping these things illegal they just need a little bit of ammunition to you know rally the troops and keep them buried for even longer yeah i mean in amsterdam all it took was one case of someone taking psilocybin mushrooms and jumping off a bridge i mean how many people did mushrooms in amsterdam for years tons and tons of people in not ideal conditions but someone took some jumped off a bridge Boom, psychedelic mushrooms are illegal. They found a loophole and they're still selling psychedelic truffles, they call them. Mm. But all it takes is one and then the legislative body moves in and and makes things happen. I mean, you see this not only in psychedelic medicine, but in any kind of 
case where people want to make something happen. I remember in uh, in California, just to use another example, how this legal body can work. In California, carrying nunchucks, you know, like kung fu nunchucks, was a felony. Whoa. A f- like a, a hardcore felony was carrying wow. nunchucks. Whereas carrying a loaded gun was a misdemeanor. What? Well, the reason why is because someone... You know, had a, had some nunchucks, and they beat the crap out of some kid who was, you know, uh, some legislator's son, oh. and they beat him up with nunchucks. So the nunchucks got escalated to like the highest level of thing. So bring, and everybody recognizes Bruce Lee as one bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's scary when he's whipping those <laughs> things around. But but anyways, you know, the point being that it's it's super important, not just for you know the safety and the health of every single individual who's doing this, but it's also a way that the whole movement can get damaged. I mean, anybody doing psychedelics is is bearing the weight of, you know, the entire public opinion. And so mm-hmm. there's more than just yourself to worry about mm-hmm. when you're doing that. I mean, if you want this movement to succeed, we have to be, we have to all be impeccable. Super responsible. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I've always appreciated about you, Hermano, is your ability to language the antigenic experience, the psychedelic experience. And that's a gift. It's kind of like on the level of Graham Hancock. He he writes super well about things that are spiritual and etheric and um, largely difficult to put into words. Or And, and because of how many people you reach as well uh, and the way you describe your experience, people are going to get turned on to. They're going to like, wow, I want a piece of yeah, that. Yeah, I want that. I want to, yeah, l- please help me find an, an equivalent or similar way to tune in mm-hmm. to the unknown. And i.e., that's really tuning in more to myself, right. to, to really deeply who I am um, at the core. And so, again, the antigens as an accelerator to that process, they become romanticized. And that's a dangerous and potentially slippery slope. And the, the point that you're making about a lot of people pouring medicine when they haven't done the training, I think is extraordinarily on point. Um, it, it is, it's very similar to that same comparison of somebody. So in med school, we had, there was a, there was a um, rule, see one, do one, teach one. And um, that has its place. Um, but in the realm of like cardiothoracic surgery, no. It's not like I'm going to see a heart heart surgery. I'm going to um, experience one and then I'm going to teach one. There's a long drawn out process to that. And the same for the shamanic path. So people who call themselves healers, I start to get a little curious. Okay, so what's your lineage? What's your experience? How long have you been doing this? What's your track record, et cetera? If they come from a place of integrity and they have a, a pretty strong lineage and they seem to be fairly well put together, then I'm going to say, okay, let me come into that laboratory and, and see what it's like. Right. If that laboratory is solid and I have a positive experience, then I'm going to tell my friends and family about it. Right. I'm only going to put myself in that laboratory first. So that there are some of us, particularly like you and I and many of our friends, who are going to be the ones to, that experiment with... with um, the the different modalities and bring that information back to the tribe. I think like it was Terence McKenna who talked about the definition of a shaman is is that person who who goes to the edge of the known, steps across that, diving in to experience the unknown and bring that back to the tribe. So being willing to go across into an experience that could be potentially dangerous or um, um, probably at, at bare minimum disorienting, mm-hmm. at, at worst extraordinarily psychologically debilitating. Being willing to do that um, takes a fair bit of psychological constitution just by itself. Sure. And we've been in the in the realm of expo- exploring and experimenting people who are doing it really well and that's one of the things that i get super excited about when we talk about formalizing the protocols for people going down this path and i think it will happen within probably the next decade um, for a good number of these antigens to be legalized in the right set and setting in the right clinical environment with the right trained practitioners 
to facilitate clinically, medically oriented psychedelic healing. And just had a great dinner with Rick Doblin of MAPS um, about two weeks ago. And they're now in phase three trials. They've just formalized the and um, and kind of put online the necessary infrastructure for being able to make medically um, purified MDMA of a consistent um, strength and potency with each batch. And in order to have anything medically legal for prescription, you have to be able to make sure that it's of of a consistent purity and strength, which with within every batch. Mm-hmm. Um, so and and you and you can't use other machines that have made other stuff to do that. It's got to be a, a machine only, solely purposed for making MDMA. So with the mach- with the machinery in place, with the clinical trials coming on board, and with the clinical evidence that's already shown how fucking phenomenally effective MDMA is for something that's fairly clinically severe, that we don't have a whole lot of um, other even really successful methodologies for um, benefiting, and that's with PTSD. PTSD is one of those things that allopathic medicine kind of goes, it's kind of like cancer. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, shit, that's that's a bad one. Right. <laughs> We've got some medications that might help the symptoms, um, but we're not really sure how to help you best other than to do some cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, maybe some EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and basically... Um, you need alternative stimulation. Usually it was through a, with a light bar, but you can do it with audio stim or with tactile stim. You need, essentially, you need different sides of the brain firing at different times to be able to let the fear center rest so that the tracking mechanism is a bit more online to go through and reprocess the traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Fairly effective. Sometimes it needs 10 to 20 treatments. Um, and these are like hour to three hour long psychotherapeutic um, sessions. So fairly user intensive. Um, the when done in the right set and setting, modest efficacy, maybe sixty to seventy percent, depending on the trials you look at. Compare that with something like MDMA assisted psychotherapy, that has an eighty five percent success rate with two to three treatments pretty phenomenal and that's for severe chronic ptsd yeah pretty freaking phenomenal so those are the early studies that are now getting mdma online on board psilocybin is now coming into clinical research more and more effectively ayahuasca is as well not so much here in the states but it is appreciated abroad icers is an organization in spain kind of like the maps equivalent in the states um iboga has clinical trials for its awesome efficacy and opiate uh, dependency. So each of these has its place and not every psychedelic is is right for every um, layer of symptomatology. And that's when we get a huge array of tools in our tool belt with with really skilled therapists that know when to use which, that we get this great likelihood of benefit. And the risk benefit ratio is extraordinarily in the side of benefit with low risk. And not everybody is going to do, like for example with severe PTSD, not everybody's going to do well uh, using ayahuasca first and foremost straight out the gate. We're actually going to be doing an ayahuasca study down at the Temple of the Way of Light this coming year for PTSD. And um, then we had a good conversation uh, with a mutual friend Michael just a few days ago um, around the importance of creating the right set and setting, but also being able to pace the psychedelic experience. So for some people who are so raw in their fear response, ayahuasca might not be necessarily the right first choice, right? Because you're in a dark setting and sometimes it's like... And it's scary as fuck in general. (laughs) And it it, it can be like popping off the cork on a champagne bottle and all of a sudden you get this shit everywhere. And you're like, now what do we do with that? Right. so it would be like if you had the opportunity to say like open source and open make openly available in a good way the right psychedelic um, progression, it might be just something like doing MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Or float tanks first. Float tanks are an amazing first 
mm-hmm. first thing to do. Float tanks, maybe some shamanic breathing, then MDMA, then ayahuasca. Right. You know, like bring them through the spectrum exactly. in, a, in a treatment protocol. Because you want people to be able to feel safe. Right. While they're going through this and be able to find, to come back, essentially it's like coming back to your center. Anytime we get freaked out, if we can find our center, we can reconnect with the breath, then the fear will dissipate. Physiologically, the fear will dissipate. You cannot be connected, <clears throat> you cannot be connected with diaphragmatic breathing and be panicked at the same time. It's physiologically right. impossible because we're binary beings. You're your sympathetic system is on or your parasympathetic system is on dominant not you can't have both dominant at the same time so that's why one of the things that people learn when they have panic attacks or the, the somebody's fear response is so jacked if you can train somebody to get in touch with their breath through the breathing work that you're describing mm-hmm. um, and that that really relaxed breathing state then physiologically they will eventually shift over usually it takes a few minutes most people don't stay with it that long. They get too freaked out and they, they start breathing shallow. The holotropic breath work, that's a different style of breathing altogether. And that's really powerful as an antigen. We were talking about Stanislav Grof earlier. He, this guy did 4, 000, something like 4,000 clinical case uh, um, sessions with LSD psychotherapy. And then when that became illegal, he wanted to also um, find another modality that was um, less psychedelically based. So he came up with holotropic breath work. Something that they would have a much harder time making illegal. Breathing. Right. Try and make that illegal. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Right? Ah, right. You, you were breathing too fast mm-hmm. there. We're going to throw you in a cage. Right. <laughs> Keep you from breathing too fast. For <laughs> yeah, your we good. don't want you freaking out. We don't want you going yep. across the veils. Yep. We don't want you, like, waking up. Right. Because, you know, you, and again, you can get into the kind of conspiracy theory about why that is. Well, the educational system... It was born from like World War II assembly lines making bomber parts, right? Mm-hmm. It was great to have minions just making widgets. Yeah. And the educational system is largely unchanged since then. Everybody gets the same curriculum. Everybody takes the same standardized tests. Unless you're looking at Waldorf schools and Montessori schools, um, everybody's doing the same kind of like widget making. Well, that's getting into, you know, a little bit of, uh, of building the, the ideal society. But, but one other thing I want to touch on is <clears throat> it seems to me that, you know, the, the preparation work and the integration work are these two really key pieces that, you know, a lot of times are missed, you know, in any kind of, in any kind of work, you know, I mean, even if it's just like a casual, you know, mushroom experience that someone wants to have, where it's not a super deep dive, but, you know, they want to do some work. Well, they don't even pay attention to what they eat that day. You know, and then they're like, oh, yeah, mushrooms get me nauseous. Well, what'd you have? Oh, I had a fucking In-N-Out burger before I did it. I put it on a pizza. I'm like, you put it on a pizza? (laughs) Of course you're going to be nauseous. Like, come on, man. (laughs) Don't mushrooms go on pizza? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, so it's interesting, but it seems to me that if if you have one of these conditions, you know, and if we were allowed the freedom to develop that protocol, it could be like, you know, okay, four floats two shamanic breathwork sessions, one MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, then the ayahuasca, and then just go right back down the pyramid the same way, Mm -hmm. you know? Do another MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, go back through the holotropic breathing, hit the float tanks in this kind of up and then back modality. And I think that the odds of success in that would be staggering, just staggering, if Mm -hmm. you were able to take people through this progression and really work to heal them not just treat the symptoms not just chase these things all over the place yeah yeah you um you're right on with that man integration um i think is is the is the the biggest missing piece of the whole puzzle oftentimes particularly in our circle of of friends and, and community many of us have been psychonauts we've explored other things prior to coming to the bigger ones like mm-hmm. iboga, ayahuasca, even wachuma. We've experimented with a few others. So we've been on that process. Many haven't. And with the the availability and the information like through your podcast, through Rogan's podcast, through Graham Hancock's books, through Terrence McKenna's research, I mean, 
there's so much information now um, that's been out there for a long time, but it's gaining another resurgence in this uh, in this new millennium. Many people are getting super excited, and they hear about people's experience of breakthroughs. People have suffering from pain, emotional pain, physical pain, whatever, for so long, and then they drop into an ayah ceremony, and then like they're liberated magically. And that sounds like you know the the, the best case scenario, and that's also the uh, the one potential experience on the whole spectrum of potential experiences right. and the likelihood like you just said of success largely comes from how much you've prepped who's facilitating it and what does that look like and how have you integrated and so if we're doing the prep work kind of just naturally on our own accord then we might not really appreciate the super importance of doing the integration work and I can speak first and foremost from that perspective myself. When I, when I came back from the jungles, and I've told you this story before, mm-hmm. I lived in the jungles for a year, and when I came back, it, it, it was so freak. And I had gone really deep. I, I, li- I went to live there to study with ayahuasca. Uh, I did a lot of ceremonies, and I went so deep, and I had no appreciation for the importance of integration that when I came back, I could not be around other people like literally physically energetically so i lived in a tent for a year (laughs) and most people aren't really going to want to do that or have Mm -hmm. the time or opportunity to do that um and and that was also after doing you know close to 100 ceremonies and not not everybody's going to do that many as well but even one ceremony is important to integrate because the integration all three of those, from my perspective, all three of those are equally important. Mm-hmm. Preparation, ceremony, and integration. All three of those stages is equally important. It's um, If you don't prep well, the likelihood of having a lousy experience is much higher. Yep. Whether and, and on all levels. Have you prepped your body? Have you prepped your mind? Have you, pre- have you prepped your psyche and like the emotional content? Do you know what's potentially going to happen? Um, and then on the integration side, do you have anybody that's your support system to be able to rework and rewire your psychic experience? Um, it was great to catch up with your little sister yesterday, Olivia. I hadn't seen her since we were down uh, with Don Howard yep. doing Wachuma and that experience. Um, and I, I hope she didn't mind if I called her out on that. But since mm-hmm. she was in the film, I figured she would be okay with mm-hmm. it. Um, and we were talking about integration. And um, we had talked about integration then. And she said, you know, when I came back, I knew I, I, we had talked about integration, but I didn't know how hard it would be. And, and the integration is the same for any peak experience. The antheogens are just kind of what we're highlighting now. Um, from a Buddhist perspective, the same thing could be said for enlightenment. And there's a good book called um, uh, First Enlightenment, Then the Laundry. Right, and and essentially that's like wow, I had this great awakening, and now it's chopping wood and carrying water. It's like back to square one, back to the mm-hmm. norm, back to this reality. And what what does this mean? And and how do I take that peak experience and bring that into my life? Yep, that can be really disorienting if you don't have the right support, and you come back to the environment that you that you had left, and it's the same, including the people. Except your internal environment it's totally is drastically different. altered, and that's and that's one of the issues, and, and a really good segue to talking about you know how it's not only important to think about the individual but the community because we are social beings, and you have these peak enlightening experiences, and if everything around you is a, a completely different frequency designed not only not to support these enlightened superconscious states but to actively degrade them, which is the case in, in a lot of our current society, mm-hmm. um, then it's going to be a real challenge. So I think we have the freedom, you know, maybe we can't change all the laws of the land, and, and but that's not necessarily what we need to do. I think we can start creating conscious communities within, you know, within this structure, these alliances, these groups, these practices, these, you know, volitional attempts uh, to make sure that our environment and these pressures and influences around us 
are supportive of major growth and change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, in- the integration experience when when we go through when when we go into a peak experience, you know, we have a particular frequency. When we come out of a peak experience, we have a different frequency, right? And it's not we won't say necessarily higher or lower because it's not a judgment, but it's frequency. Everything's frequency. When we come through that experience and our frequency is different, what's the frequency of the environment? Usually, we're, we're connected with our environment in a particular way because resonant frequencies attract resonant frequencies. So if I'm hanging out with, you know, like my friends, my family, my community, we're vibing on a particular level. Otherwise, I wouldn't be hanging out with those people. I would find other people that I was vibing with. So I go through this experience and on the other side of that experience, I'm different. Nothing necessarily, unless they've gone through a similar experience, nothing in the environment has shifted. If I go home and this now is the, is the case, that now there's this, this difference, there's this differential, one of four things is going to happen. I'm going to, through sheer will and perseverance and accessing all my available support, I'm going to be able to maintain my frequency and support my environment to be able to come up and match me now where I am. That's the ideal situation Mm -hmm. because I've gone through something and now I'm able to bring that back to the tribe and benefit the collective. It's like Gandalf on the bridge putting his staff down. Saying, Boom. I will not change right. my frequency right. to meet you. I am so you. freaking <laughs> yeah. rock solid yeah, in yeah, that. Yeah. Right? Or I don't have the support. I don't have that resolve. Um, time takes over. And I slowly, bit by bit by bit, come back to the frequency that I was prior to that peak experience and I'm now matching my environment because now I feel safe and I feel met. Mm-hmm. Because it can, if you're not feeling met, it can be feel it can feel fairly lonely. And that's the biggest thing that people talk about on the other side of a peak experience is they feel alone. Yeah. Because the environment now doesn't support where they have now gone to. So bit by bit, maybe I lose what I've gained. And I've seen that particularly at Grace Grove. We've seen a lot of people come through those our program there, detoxification rejuvenation program, and they go home and they don't maintain the gains because they don't have the support, they don't have a workable integration program, etc. Bit by bit by bit, they go back into old eating habits, psychological patterns, whatever it is, and that comes back down. That's number two. Number three is that these relationships go away. So whatever was in my environment now its inertia is so static that it won't change. Mm -hmm. And I'm so solid in my new frequency that I'm not going to change. So then I find a new environment, a new set of friends, a new set of chosen family, a new occupation, a new living situation that is already at the environment level and consciousness level that I choose to maintain. Right. That's choice three. I think you mentioned it, and I want to get to choice four, but there's an important point in there. When you say chosen family, you know, I, I think that's a concept that is really pretty vital because there's ingrained in our heads this sense of obligation to certain people, like that we have to subject ourselves to, you know, certain individuals because they are our family. You know, and, and we had it. We had a wonderful dinner with our our good friend Ted Decker, who is really, you know, a master in exploring and understanding Christ consciousness and and the the, the real teachings of Christ as he understands them. And he was he said something really really interesting um, that that partly applies to that. He said, in order to follow me, meaning to, in order to be a part of the Christ consciousness. You know, you must hate your mother, hate your father, mm. hate your brother. And that word hate is a strong word. But I think in, in that translation, it means to really, if you're really interested in pursuing consciousness, 
you know, all of these other things, these special relationships that you think you have, these obligations, you know, you have to be willing to divorce those, your attachments to them, whatever it is, and make volitional choices about each individual. And I think people get trapped in so many situations in these kind of toxic relationships out of some sense of obligation, you know? Yeah, your parents birthed you, you know, awesome. Give them gratitude. But it doesn't mean that you have to subject yourself to, you know, these lashings of uh, and whatever parts of these relationships that are not good unless you can maintain adequate defenses but it's not your obligation you have a right to your own happiness you have a right to your new consciousness Mm -hmm. you can choose which family you have Mm -hmm. you know and that's okay you Mm -hmm. know and that's for the greater good Mm -hmm. you know not in a mean way not in a in a cold way but out of love out of love for yourself a ruthless self-love loving yourself enough to demand that you're willing to do what it takes to get your greatest gains. That last part that you made is such a vital distinction. And I think you're right on with with Ted's description of that. And I actually had a hard time understanding what that meant. I remember reading that a while back. I have to hate my mother and hate my father. I don't get that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I appreciated his translation as we started talking it through. Hate, we could translate to attachment. Yep. So if I am able to separate my attachment from my mother, my father, my community, etc., then I can more readily put my own mask on first before I look to the service of putting, helping somebody put their mask on second. If we're mm-hmm. in a nosedive, I got to get my oxygen mask on first. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to come through that out of compassion for all of our relationships, out of gratitude for our parents birthing us, for our community supporting us, um, deep gratitude, deep appreciation. And I'm not running away to take care of myself because I'm pissed off, because I'm hurt, because um, I wasn't met, I wasn't loved, because somebody traumatized me. Ideally, we work through that while we're still connected to those people. Uh, sometimes that's really freaking hard to do because ideally that level of healing requires them to acknowledge what they did. But I don't have to wait for somebody else to acknowledge hurting me before I can heal that on my own. Yeah. Because at a certain level, I appreciate the fact that only I can give up my power. Now, as children, that's not necessarily the case because children haven't really adultified their own just neurobiology they haven't matured their own neuroanatomy and myelination of of all of the organizational structures to be able to think in these kinds of terms so we're talking about more from an adult perspective the ability to appreciate that at at our core i cannot um i'm i'm first person perspective responsible for my own power mm-hmm and no one at, at a particular level can do anything to me. And if I, and, and so, and that puts our whole paradigm of the judicial system completely on its head. There's some uh, Native American cultures, um, I don't know if it's a Lakota tradition, I think it was one of the Plains tribes that I read this example of when there was somebody in the tribe who did something egregious to somebody else in the tribe. Like, like something violent or stole from them or did something like criminal. That the attention didn't go to the victim of that crime. The attention went to the perpetrator out of compassion. The whole tribe rallied around the perpetrator to understand more deeply what was affecting that person. Because only somebody very troubled and hurt and traumatized themselves would perpetrate some criminal act on another. So the support network was first and foremost around the perpetrator, and yes, supported the victim too, but the understanding was that we have our first-person perspective ability to recognize that at my core, if if, if somebody's doing something to me, then I am not a victim in that. It's my job to be able to stand up and say that's not right, mm. to take the the to take my own power and sovereignty back. Now, <clears throat> Nelson Mandela is another great example of somebody who 
took his power back through a 27-year experience in prison and coming out of that found compassion and an ability through nonviolent resistance. You can draw the same comparison with Gandhi and Martin Luther King and so many other people who have found their own strength and reservoir of consistent perseverance in the face of persecution to the extent that was so undeniably remarkable and respectable that it rallied the masses who were not yet at that frequency in frequency and we can call that a frequency as mm -hmm. well so when we do recognize if somebody's done something egregious to us or maybe we have just now resonated out of our family of origin like my dad's fond of calling me the wanderer um and we have a relationship that's healed quite a bit as I've come into compassion with ways that I didn't think that he parented me in just the right way. Right. And and then when I realized he did his absolute best and he's a remarkable person and he's very dedicated to his family in his own way. And I might be a, I might do that in my own way, but I'm I'm just I'm my own person. And I've never actually been a father. So how can I actually judge my father if I haven't actually been a father for one? Right. Who am I to judge somebody if I haven't been in that same experience? Um, it's super powerful to come to a place of non-attachment because then we can really see what's best for us. Totally. It, and it's the different, you know, as you're describing, you know, we have everything based on a very low frequency ego based society, which has judgment for, you know, first and foremost, you know, I mean, we're constantly judging ourselves, we're constantly judging others and punishing them based upon these judgments, you know, this that kind of Old Testament, biblical, you know, nonsense, you know, commit a sin, I smite thee, you know, like, and that's, and that's how it goes. Whereas in that Lakota example, in the conscious example, really the only appropriate response to that is pity, you know, mm -hmm. and there's that great power. You know, I, when I was younger, I never understood that turn the cheek aphorism. And I don't think most people do either, but you know, in talking with Ted and growing older, I mean, if you hit somebody, you know, and they, and they hit you back and they're in a rage and they pound you and pummel you. Well, okay. They were stronger than you, you know, but they were just stronger on that physical level. You incited anger, you damaged them, which caused them to have a reaction to go out of their way to do something back to you. If you hit somebody, they smile and turn the other side of their face. How much more badass is that person than you? <laughs> like you, at that point, you're like, fuck. Whoa. I'm right. really. Like, <laughs> I gave that person all I got, and he yeah, just smiled and he walked smiled away. <laughs> and he smiled and turned the other side of his head, like. Do it again if you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like what it would be like if we came upon a dragon and tried to punch a dragon in the face. And they just looked at us like, really, motherfucker? You're going to punch me in the face? Here, here's another one. You know, it's like that much of a higher level of strength is required in that. And, and I think that's what the expectations in that tribal example, the expectations are for the vis victim to be able to rise above that insult and not take it as an insult. You know, I'm sure there's some reparations that the tribe would make. I'm sure that's mm -hmm. part of it as well. Um, but but the real, you know, the pity in that situation does not go to the victim because the victim, the assumption is the victim can is not a victim and can overcome that with their impeccability and strength. But the pity goes to the perpetrator mm -hmm. because... You know, that is the appropriate response. Now, does that mean, you know, I've used this example before. Does that mean if someone's going to come try to attack my girlfriend, I'm not going to take them out? No, fuck no. You know, I'm, I have a right to protect my own, you know, sovereignty. But if someone lobs an insult to me on Twitter or something like that, you know, and I get riled up, that's weakness, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my response. That's not strength. You know, strength is you know, smiling and, and saying, that's an interesting idea that you have there. I'm sorry that you're so angry that you feel the need to do that, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, so that's a more kind of realistic example of, of how that works. But in our society, you know, every step of the way, there's, there's things that have seemingly gone a little bit off course because we haven't been pursuing that that high frequency. We haven't been in ritual together. We haven't formed, 
truly conscious community. And, and I think there's out of balance even in the most, you know, these quote conscious communities. I think there's a lack of balance. There's a lack of um, that young energy to mm -hmm. really be willing to stand totally. up and fight and create change, you know, so. I like really train conscious warriors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I lived in an ashram community for about two years and it was really great for my for quieting my mind and opening my heart and getting me more spirit centered, super weak for my body. And, and it didn't feel super empowering on a physical level or on a world level. I was getting more and more fearful about being in the world because right. I was so inward and I was so protective of a spiritual frequency that I perceived that I was attaining. Mm -hmm. And so when we get to build both into the mix, and we do train conscious warriors because we're all warriors on this path, particularly at this fairly critical juncture as a human, as a humanity. Just saw Interstellar and you and I geeked out on that for mm -hmm. uh, a good time, recognizing the brilliance of that movie and the timely message of that movie. Avatar, kind of a similar flavor, like what are we doing to the planet? What are we doing as a species? What's our trajectory? You could make the argument if we don't change our trajectory, um, that things are going to be in dire straits in, within our lifetimes. So to be conscious warriors, to be able to write the imbalances, how do we get to show up in a good way? And, and creating conscious community is one way to do that, to collectivize and marshal all of our resources together, to share our message of a desire to live in harmony with nature, and live in harmony with one another. And again, these are these are age-old traditional teachings, core values. And we, as a Western consumptive, corporately oriented society, have lost a lot of that mm. because of the profit margin at the end of the day. And that's a crazy, crazy uh, imbalance that's happened very recently in our human evolution, fairly quickly, in the last just few hundred years has that really come up online it's always been a little bit of that hierarchy you know the king if you've got a greedy king he's going to tax everybody and want to be like top right. dog but the the societies that have lasted for long periods of time like chavin that you and i have gotten really connected to and these different pulses of consciousness have largely been instilled by common values and living in harmony with one another and one of the things that helps us do that, because we get to heal the underlying program that took us out of balance, are the antigens. Mm -hmm. And being able to know how to access those, um, having coaching and preparation, again, set and setting for the experience, and then integrating it on the other side. And The Island is another book that we've shared um, some affinity for. Yeah. And, and the... And the and so the island is like your how-to manual to create conscious community and the conscious society. Conscious society, right? And society island, at large. Island is a book by Aldous Huxley that I review on my blog. Super good. And then the fifth sacred thing is a how-to manual. Um, once that society's been created, to be able to through conscious nonviolent resistance and really appreciating how everybody is interconnected on this level of human frequency, humanity how to be able to maintain our core values when we're when our entire society is threatened mm -hmm. two amazingly potent potent views um of of what is possible and i think we we have the opportunity to create that whether we do it on just a small scale or we're able to really create it on a big scale is has yet to be seen i'm super freaking stoked to create that on a small scale and that's i can't think of anything that i'm more dedicated to Everything for me is pointing in that direction. Yeah, likewise. And I think when, when people think about that, you know, in creating your own tribe, which is something that we're, you know, we're in the process of doing ourselves. And, and if I think thinking about society and the laws and all of that, it can be a little bit overwhelming to kind of worry about just the macro. But if you imagine that you're able to create, you know, a tribe of 100 people, and it's not just collecting only the people that are just like you and think exactly that way, but drawing in different individuals that have their own strengths and their own weaknesses. You know, I mean, you don't want everybody to be homogenous in a tribe. Mm -mm. You know, that doesn't make genetic diversification make, is super helpful. That, yeah, and 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 skills 
you know, diversification and right. personality diversification. And, right. you know, so when, when we think about this, it's not like, okay, well, how many people from, you know, this little niche can we get together and gather, which is, I think, one of the reasons, one of the areas that a lot of these communities have gone wrong is they're collecting the same person, you know, over and over again. Like, ideally, you have some people holding down that far end of consciousness, you know, that can really provide ritual and provide ceremony and be that anchor for the tribe. And then you have these other people who are have a proclivity for massive influence in society, you know, whether they're professional athletes or Wall Street bankers and they're really or politicians or people on this other side just dealing in the in the middle, in the fray of mainstream society, you know, so that in combination the the super conscious of the tribe and those people can meet and mingle and each share and impart some of those values mm -hmm. upon each other so that everybody is you know is included in this in this group you mm -hmm. know and everybody falling in between with different skills mm -hmm. and different values and you know if everybody had that system then it's this kind of self-reinforcing unit you know if everybody was a part of one of these groups then you know you'd be able to catch these kind of delinquent events and be able to support people in these variety of different pathologies and sufferings and depressions and all of these things you'd have that built in so my advice would be for people interested in creating this kind of tribe i mean think about the rituals that'll bond you together think about you know the agreements that you have amongst each other but don't think that you have to c collect only the same person over and over again you know, like reach out, find those people who can add certain strengths and see what strengths that you can complement them with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like uh, like the movie Divergence. Mm -hmm. You know, there were these different factions and, and where did it go wrong? Well, there was such like the, the, the aristocracy um, desire to keep everybody very um, homogenized within these factions, within these groups. And of course, there was a sinister plot. So you had good and evil and all that plays out. But at, at, a, at a thematic level, it's really helpful to have people who represent different aspects and strengths of the human potential, all collectivizing their skills for the benefit of the unit. Mm -hmm. You don't have, it's, it's better to have a, a, um, a diverse group of people if when you're looking just for like the likelihood of sustainability that are collectivized around a core set of values. Like my strengths and weaknesses are different than your strengths and weaknesses. What I can bring to the table is different than yours. But I am, and, I, and yet I'm still as equally invested to yeah. the survival of the unit as a whole. Right. So we come, to, we come together with this really deep desire in this human experiment, because that's essentially what we are in the midst of. We're each individually in the midst of this human laboratory. I, I only know really what's happening in my own little experiment. I, I, I don't know what's happening in your experiment. I can only see that mm -hmm. from the outside. I get flavors of it when I feel your heart, when I feel your emotional framework and, and your spiritual kind of essence. I can get a sense of it. But still, at the end of the day, I'm only primarily understanding and responsible for my own little human experiment. So when we desire to put our human experiments together, then it gets really rich. And, and, and super fun. Yeah. I mean, like at the core, we're social beings built for both survival and play. Yeah. And most people now, when you look at that seesaw, are so much in fucking survival, they don't even know how to re reorient their play and recapture their play, resurrect their play. That's why I think it's really helpful to hang out with kids. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why people like dolphins so much. Totally. You know, because they're, they've... Sex and play. Yeah, they've gotten to the point where survival is pretty easy for them. They're mm -hmm. really fucking good at catching fish, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not that difficult. And they don't have any predators. You know, and nobody's messing with them because they're right. too smart and they're too fast. And they're so... <clears throat> except for humans, you know, right. they have to deal with that. But... You know, so they spend most of their time probably as humans should be spending most of our time because, hey, guess what? We're also really good at catching food and we're also really smart and we've also defeated most of our natural predators, mm -hmm. you know. So we probably should be a lot more like the dolphins and spending most of our time in play, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what humans should be doing, playing in love, playing in, you know, 
play. Just play. Please. Please. It helps everybody. Yeah. So, <laughs> so at least getting a little closer to that makes sense because, you know, that's really what we're here to do. Yeah, when you when you look at the and science even shows that when you look at the longevity practices, what are the what are the things that people do that help them live the longest? They laugh, they exercise, they play, and these are these are things that we can just naturally. It's not like taking the best supplement. It's not like taking the new latest craze, you know, fat loss pill. Yeah. Or HGH, you know, human growth hormone. It's not like taking all the new fancy shit. It's really coming down to basics. Eat well get good sleep fast from time to time like don't eat from time to time which mm-hmm. is also evolutionarily kind of built into the program because we didn't always have food so electively go without food for like a day a week or a few days a month or something like that or 16 hours a day in a given mm-hmm. calendar um and play because it really helps people remember like the core of the core potential of the human experience yeah and and the 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 cultural program has really gotten out of balance the other way and that's another thing that i always appreciate so much about being in the collective here is that one of the most common messages about like total human optimization from the on it platform of core values is play exercise build your body as like a strong human temple and let's have these kind of conversations about how we can also expand our consciousness open our heart be able to share collectively Yep, that's that's the whole picture, really, you know, and that's uh, and I think one of the key things, you know, add on it is that we understand that it's difficult to play when you're in pain. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to play when you're don't have any energy at all. And, you know, you're just down, you know, that lightness, that spirit. You know, when I think back to the happiest times that I've had, it's when I carry a certain lightness. And then every situation has an opportunity for laughter to break out, for enjoyment, enthusiasm, passion. You know, it's when that lightness is present. And so much of that is dependent on, you know, physical things. Um, And now, of course, your mind can overcome that. And no matter what's going on, your mind can get to that state. And we all know people that are like that. You know, people who are, you know, just coming out of suffering what would be the devastating tragedy for 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 some and they're still just as light and and so we all know those examples but that's difficult for most of us so you know why not take care of the body why not make it a little easier on our minds um but in in the absence of that also at the same time work on our minds work on these practices work on our ethos so that even if we are a little bit off we can still carry that lightness with us because mm-hmm. that's the key you know that's that's really where the magic is you know i mean there's there's the fight and then there's the magic you know there's a lot to fight for here in the world but you can get too caught up in fighting every day fighting to pay the bills fighting for a better society fighting for your family and and take this kind of just this huge burden upon yourself and look at yourself i'm just a soldier i'm in the shit i'm in the shit you know i gotta keep fighting well why it's so people can play, including yourself, mm-hmm. you know, like give yourself that opportunity to be light, to, you know, to have some fun, to enjoy mm-hmm. life. And, uh, and that's really where the magic is. That's what makes it, makes it all worthwhile. But you got to take care of the body and then you got to work on the mental practices and you got to get over your fears, you know, and that's another great thing that the psychedelic medicine is really good for is helping you push past your fears mm-hmm. because that is a that really limits play as well so right on man and i think that's um, a huge draw whether people are conscious of it or not something is limiting me from my ultimate happiness mm-hmm. something is preventing me from having that spark maintaining that light having that levity in life i can feel it maybe i don't know what it is maybe i do know what it is and i haven't been able to shed it how can i do that in order to get to where i really choose and see myself potentially getting to at a level of 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 joy um, unconditional positivity um, faith optimism inspiration love celebration all of these things that we know is our potential and we get inspired when we see that in others and we're like how did that person get there 
I choose to have some more of that in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, doing that deep shadow work, like when you asked me Friday night when we were here on a podcast to open up the gym, um, it was like, I think you, you asked me, it was like a 30-second soundbite on like, given everything that I've studied up to this point, what's like the, the best thing to tell people? I was like, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, where do I start? And it came down to working with your shadow. Right. Really being able to go into that darkness, going in, go into whatever it is that we would shame or guilt or try and deny, act like isn't there. We don't even want to acknowledge it when we look in the mirror, much less show it to anyone else. Be able to go into that place. Be able to explore that. Open up to that. Get curious about that because that is a mountain of potential growth, teaching, um, being more integrated as a whole person. And when we can use our weaknesses as strengths, then we start to become invincible, yeah. ever powerful. And that gets that gets into that bridge between both our active, our activation, our our kind of activist, being a conscious warrior in the world, and our play. When we've when we've released some of that shadow material in order to integrate it into our more whole self then we're more able to, I think, see how to balance being both a warrior and a poet, mm. which is one thing that I really appreciate about just the title of, of this discussion series. And, and you really do, and this isn't just because I'm on your show and I'm, I'm giving you kudos, <laughs> I've gotten to know you as a really good friend and brother, and I really consistently appreciate that about you, is being able to balance those two. And I think that's one of the things that, that you and I have, have uh, um, shared along the path is that desire to go into the shadow and really get curious yeah. about what's there. Yeah. Yeah. To, to seek that knowing that it'll be okay on the other side, mm-hmm. you know, and just to push those. I remember I had a, I had a mini breakthrough the other day when there was a cockroach and I was about to set up a meditation space and I saw a cockroach in the, in the corner of the room. And I don't like bugs at all. That's not my <laughs> fucking thing. <laughs> I can you know? attest to that. I've seen yeah. you in the jungles. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was thinking, I was just about to meditate. So I don't want to smash a cockroach right before I'm meditating. It just felt wrong. And normally I, was, I would get like some kind of jar of some sort and put it over it and slide the paper under it and then remove it from the room. That I didn't see any jars, and I just wanted to get to it. And I knew that the, this was a test, kind of like when I was on Wachuma. It was a test to mm-hmm. see if I could just pick this thing up in my hand and let it outside. Well, of course, I go to do that, and the cockroach scurries immediately into the corner of the room where it was nestled right underneath the spider web. So I'm thinking, oh, fucking great. <laughs> Cockroach and a spider web. Perfect. Of course it's right. And it's just like chilling there. Like, nope, not going to go anywhere. You want to get me? You got to get me right through this spider web. I'm like, okay. So I like steal my nerves, like take a few deep breaths, knowing that, you know, there's nothing to fear about this cockroach. It's not going to do anything to me. And if I allowed that fear to win, it was mastering some part of my own omnipotence. You know, it was stealing some part of my power by giving it to that and saying, you have power over me because I'm afraid of this scenario. So I said, all right, I got to do it. So I reach my hand down and I go to pick up the cockroach and I get it in my hand and it, all of its legs at once just go <laughs> in my hand. <laughs> I drop it. It's like, shit, fail, part one. I was like, and it scurries right back to that same corner, like, went, like a homing device, right back to the same spot. It's like, all right, listen, I got I to gotta make this happen. Like, I got to figure this out. I can't give my power to this cockroach. And I immediately, after that happened, I was like, oh, shit. I looked around again for another jar. I didn't see a jar, thankfully. It's like, all right, I'm going to do this the right way. So I went down and I really committed. Put both hands down. And I shooed the cockroach from, one, from the corner into my other hand. And as soon as it got into my hand, it just kind of chilled. Just hung out. I was like, oh, yeah. Put my other hand on top. And then took it outside and let it off in the bushes. And, and that may seem incredibly trivial, you know, that little, that little thing, you know. But I think, and it's a message that I've given here a lot, anytime you push past any of your little fears, any of these self-limiting beliefs, there's a certain empowerment that comes from it. It says, you know, I am a powerful being, you know, and I can use my mind to overcome 
you know, whatever little trivial thing is bothering me. Because that had a tangible, that had, that was a tangible thing. It was a bug that I was afraid of. But all the time there's parasites in our own mind that we have that very same power to let either limit us, make us afraid, defeat us, or overcome with our own intent and our own really limitless power of our own mind. And so I would say, you know, anytime you get an opportunity to do something like that, to push past one of your irrational fears, fucking do it, you know? And that could be, you know, a really well-intentioned and crafted psychedelic experience, or it could be something tangible like that, you know, Mm -hmm. understanding when there's danger and when it's just fear, when it's Mm -hmm. just your own mind or some pattern in your mind that you want to break, you know, some little addictive thing that you're giving yourself permission for, just saying no to that, no not going to do that mm-hmm. you know all these little victories add up and add to our own personal power and in doing that you know give the best opportunity to live that optimized life to live that life full of play and bliss and love and laughter and joy and fight and the good fight mm-hmm. you know? oh. yeah those little victories that's a great description yeah because we get to celebrate all those victories and how it always feels good yeah to come through something that we didn't think we could do to push beyond a perceived limit or limitation and then get to see really how how far are we able to go and that that's there's so many different experiences whether it's physical limitations and like getting in the gym and going a little bit further Mm. for me that was there was a similar experience in swimming i was i got into swimming for a while and and i thought it was huge that i was able to swim 45 minutes nonstop. And I was freaking tired. And it was a certain number of laps. Mm-hmm. And then there was a guy that came over to the Grove and he's like, and he was freaking ripped. I was like, dude, what do you do? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. I swim every day up in like Lake Michigan, wetsuit and all. I'm like, wow, sweet. He goes, yeah, it's about an hour and a half, two hours. I'm like, <laughs> whoa. You swim for an hour and a half straight, nonstop, doubled anything that I was doing at that point. I was like, holy sh- Nikes. And then the next day I swam for an hour. Yeah. And the day after that, I swam for an hour and 10 minutes. Day after that. So by, two, but like just a little over a week, I was at an hour and a half. <laughs> like like Banner with the four minute mile. I mean, it was this perceived limitation. And as soon as somebody else just like crushed what I thought was my limit, I was like, well, yeah. obviously that's not my limit. Right. What is my limit? And how can I go beyond it? Yep. Victories. Little victories. Massive. That's it. Well, good luck, everyone, with all your little victories. Lando, <laughs> tell us about a little victory you're going to have coming up here soon. Do you even have a microphone? Uh, no. <laughs> Where's my microphone now? <laughs> welcome, welcome, Orlando, to the show. Tell us about a little victory you're going to do this weekend, Lando. That's our homework. Everybody's homework is a little victory. Bingo. Well, I'm trying to gain some mass, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add some weight to that bar. That's, add that's, some weight to the bar is Lando's little victory. <laughs> I like that, brother. Dan, little victory for you this weekend? Ah, oh, this weekend. Well, we may go wake surfing mm. this weekend. Dynamite. I've done that once before. I, I was okay the first for a first day. It was okay. Uh, I want to. I want to do at least five minutes on the wake surf. I want to get five minutes, like just nail it, and then start doing some tricks. Physical little victories. Um, I think I can't think of anything emotionally that's scary or right well, psychically that's. Limiting You've been right doing now. a lot of work. <laughs> so five minutes on the wakeboard, <laughs> on the wake surf is fine for you. All right. For me, my little victory is <clears throat> I massively overate yesterday, and it was fucking delicious. It was Thanksgiving. I enjoyed the shit out of that. Um, but today, I'm trying to fast. So my little victory is going to be to actually stick with that and just not eat any food today. Because I know it's going to come around 4 o'clock and like, mmm, yummy, hot mm-hmm. food. Yeah. That's, that's a great victory. Dude. Yeah. That takes victory. will. Yeah. Right? Consistent will. That's it. All right, everyone. Take a little victory. Make it happen. Little victories add up to big victories in the campaign of our life. So much love to you all. Dr. Dan, thanks for coming, my brother. Always, Always a pleasure. pleasure. <laughs> all right. Totally. Peace.